Hello and welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. I hope you enjoyed last week's show, talking about how to know whether or not the work of relationship is worth it in your relationship. Today, we're going to tackle a topic that's a bit different. These days, I don't think that you can have a conversation about conscious relationship without, at least in some respect, talking about polyamory. For me, it usually comes up in a couple different contexts. First, it can simply be when I'm talking with someone who is already actively exploring polyamory and wondering how to do it better, or is single and pondering whether polyamory might be right for them. And then there are couples who are currently monogamous who are thinking about the possibility of opening up their relationship to other partners for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes that can work, and other times, not so much. There's also the experience of jealousy that almost always comes up in conversations about polyamory, although it's relevant for everyone, no matter what your relationship status. So, how do you know if polyamory is right for you? How do you know if your currently monogamous relationship could benefit from opening things up, or if it's a bad idea? And how do you handle jealousy in your life, no matter what your circumstances? On today's episode, we're talking with Janet W. Hardy, co-author with Dossie Easton of the book The Ethical Slut, A Practical Guide to Polyamory, Open Relationships, and Other Adventures. Janet is one of the world's leading experts on the topic of how to have a healthy experience with polyamory, and she's on the show to tackle the questions we just raised and more. Janet has also generously offered to send a signed copy of her book, The Ethical Slut, to a lucky listener. To qualify, all you have to do is download the show guide at neilsatin.com slash poly, that's P-O-L-Y, or simply text the word PASSION to the number 33444 and follow the instructions to qualify. It's going to be quite a wide-ranging conversation that I hope will offer something useful for you, no matter how you're thinking about polyamory or the effects of jealousy in your own life. Janet W. Hardy, thank you so much for joining us today on Relationship Alive. I'm delighted to be here. Janet uh, also travels the world as a speaker and a teacher on topics ranging from ethical non-monogamy or multi-partner relationships to kink to beyond. So, um, Janet, you are definitely one of the world's leading experts on this topic, and I'm excited to have you here and to explore a little bit more thoroughly than we've been able to what else is possible. Absolutely. Um, Great, great. So perhaps we could just start by talking about what is polyamory and and what isn't it and in terms of how people practice it successfully now, there's a lot of debate about that even within the polyamory communities neil um there are people who want to restrict the word polyamory only to long-term multi-partner relationships um in terms of what dossie and i wrote about it in the ethical slut we want to take a more broad view of the possibilities, which can be anything from um, a circle of sexual friends to um, 
a committed couple that takes third parties into their bed from time to time. All of these things can work and have worked for any number of people. Um, and so we don't think the terminology is as important as whether the thing is working or not. Got it. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because actually last our last episode with a guest was with Terry Real talking about infidelity. And we've had another show about infidelity. And one thing that's been really clear in both of those shows is that what makes something cheating or infidelity is that there's this lack of agreement about what's actually happening in the relationship. So one thing that I really appreciate about the ethical slut is uh, clarifying that there's there are any number of possibilities available and, and they can really work successfully if everyone is in agreement about what is actually happening. Yeah. I, I did a, a radio show years ago. They had put me on to debate um, an anthropologist who was talking about jealousy as inevitable for human beings. And, you know, I, th- I think there's a case to be made for jealousy as inevitable, but he was not the man making it. Uh, the only people he had interviewed for his book were people who had been cheated on. It never occurred to him to go talk to people in consensual poly arrangements or even Mormon polygamists or any of the people he could have talked to who were in some kind of a multi-partner relationship and liking it. So, of course, he came to the conclusion that jealousy was inevitable because he was only talking to people who had been betrayed. Well, I hope you won that debate. <laughs> well, I kind of think I did, but he probably thinks he did too because that's the way his debates work. <laughs> totally true. And and I want to be clear too, and we spoke about this a little bit before we got started, but especially for, for you listening, um, for the most part, this podcast has been focused on monogamous relationships. And... Um, And so while I'm not, I wouldn't say that the purpose of our chatting is that I'm necessarily advocating for for anything, whether it's monogamy or polyamory. I think that um, for me personally, the the question of whether or not people try to be poly or open their relationship or bring a third partner in or whatever configuration there they want to try is um, whether it's working or not. And so many times, as I mentioned to you, particularly my clients will come to me and say, we're really struggling, things aren't working, we've been together a while, and um, and we're thinking maybe that it would be helpful to open, to have an open relationship, and maybe that will help us out. And time and again, I've basically advise people don't do that like you're, you're you're not really in a place to do that sort of thing and so having said that um janet i'm wondering if you can talk for a moment about how would a couple that's been monogamous know if trying to open up their relationship from your perspective is really a good idea or not Um, I think that what I would advise is that 
whether or not you consider yourself monogamous, you have to have some of the same discussions, many of the same discussions that poly people do. I mean, how many of the issues that you see coming up between monogamous people have to do with one person thinking that X for whatever value of X is within the agreement and the other pe person thinking that X is outside the agreement. For example, um, looking at porn is a place where that sometimes goes on the rocks or masturbation or, or uh, flirting with someone outside the relationship, all of these things. Um, you can't just say we're monogamous as though that's the end of the discussion because it isn't, it never is. Um, there has to be clear agreement about what that means to you as a couple which may be entirely different from what it means to the next couple or to your best friend or to your mom. Um, and it all has to be talked about. So I think that discussion is worthwhile for anybody to have. And once you've had it, then you might have a clearer picture of where the issues are and whether opening up the relationship might be a good solution. Yeah, it's... I. Are there ever situations where you think it is the answer to problems that people are having? Depends on the problems. I mean, if it's, if it's otherwise a satisfactory and happy marriage and you have one person who wants a kind of sex that the other person is not willing to provide, then sure, you know, that it's an easy solution. Um, but it has to be standing on a firm foundation. Um, unless a couple has very strong communication skills and the willingness to... Uh, try some things that may feel challenging. Uh, it's not the time. Yeah, one thing that seems consistent both among people I know who are doing monogamy well and people I know who are doing polyamory well is that level of communication and integrity and and honesty. Self-awareness yeah, Self is huge. Um, yeah. you, you can't negotiate agreements to get your needs met if you don't know what your needs are. Right, exactly. So is there a good place where you suggest people to start in terms of developing that self-awareness? And, and how would they distinguish between their needs and their wants? And does that even matter? I'm not sure it matters. I mean, if their wants are... You know, right now I'm sitting here talking to you and I happen to know that there are some oatmeal chocolate chip cookies downstairs because I baked them. I would kind of like to have an oatmeal chocolate chip cookie, um, but I'm talking to you now. So that's that's a want and it's not an important want and I don't care that much. So I'm not going to take a break to go get a cookie. Um, if, however, what I want is I really, really, really want to try spanking and my partner does not want to go there with me. Um, yeah, it's a want. I mean, I'm not going to die if I don't get to spank somebody. Um, but it's not going to go away. You know, I, I cannot pound that one back into submission by not thinking about it. So I can either decide it's not important enough for me to give up the things I would have to give up to do it um, and settle for fantasy or for looking at spanking smut or whatever. Um, or I can decide it is that important and I'm willing to do the hard work it will take to get that need met in my life without um, doing harm that I need not do uh, and move forward with it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think, I mean, I, I feel like I could go in like 10 different directions now <laughs> with this conversation. So I'm trying to figure out what's what makes mo the most sense. Um well, one thing earlier, you brought up the question of jealousy. And I'm wondering 
for people who are still sitting there just thinking like, I can't even imagine how that would be, how it would be possible to do that because I would feel so jealous. What's your experience with jealousy and how it evolves in the context of polyamory? Or, I mean, I think people feel jealous in monogamous relationships too. Of course, so. they, do. Of course they do. It's uh, If anybody knows a way to go through life without feeling jealous, sometimes, I mean, I get jealous of my friends who are writers who post their word counts on Facebook and they're writing more than I am. I feel terribly jealous. Um, but that's not, uh, this, is, this is a main point about jealousy is it's nothing to do with them. It's about me. And we can come back to that later. Um, but I think the main thing that poly people have done have learned more about than necessarily monogamous people have, is we walk into jealousy on purpose. We know. I think it's a, a huge myth and one that used to do a lot of damage in the poly community that poly people never feel jealous. Of course we do. We're human. Um, what we do, however, is make a commitment to learn to survive jealousy, to know that sometimes we're going to hurt um, and to learn some skills for surviving the hurt and getting better at dealing with it. And those, that, I think, is a skill that's worth it for anybody to learn. Yeah, I, I like the idea, too, that when we're feeling surges of emotion, we have so many stories attached to what that could potentially be yes. and what it means about the situation that we're experiencing. And and if you can adopt this perspective of like, what if what if this is just energy that I'm experiencing? What if this isn't what I think it is? What what would it be teaching me or what could I how could I grow right now? Or what else could it be telling me? We have this uh, really strongly rooted cultural belief that jealousy is the most terrible and unsurvivable of emotions that gives us permission to act out in some truly awful ways. I could tell you a bit about laws in some parts of the country, in many parts of the country, that used to make it okay to kill your spouse if you found them in bed with another person. Uh, that's within my lifetime. It's not long. Wow. Um, so we, it's, it's that recently codified in our cultural beliefs that jealousy entitles us to act out in violent ways. Um, we don't give that kind of permission for any other emotion. If we're feeling grief, if we're feeling anger, if we're feeling even rage, we don't give ourselves permission to go and beat people up or kill them. Um, but somehow jealousy for all these years has gotten a free pass to make us um, behave like bad people. So that's the first thing to do is to get past the feeling that jealousy is unsurvivable. Um, and what you learn when you've survived a jealousy storm a few times is it gets easier. Uh, it, it, you're, you're learning to exercise new muscles that are the muscles for surviving jealousy. You're developing a set of techniques for taking care of yourself when you're in pain. And with practice, that gets easier. So if you don't mind, what are some of the specific things that you advocate for when one is experiencing jealousy? And, and I know in the book, you even talk about how there are different kinds of jealousy that you might be experiencing. There are different kinds of jealousy. Um, and teasing apart the feeling is a big part of the process. Uh, to me, what I identify as jealousy often manifests as uh, a feeling of competitiveness. Um, you know, if you think they're fabulous, then watch what I can do. 
that's how my jealousy tends to play out. But for you, it might be a sense of territoriality. That's mine. They don't get to have it. Or a sense of insecurity about uh, the future of your relationship. It's not the same emotion at all. And in fact, what we've come to decide about jealousy is that it's a whole raft of emotions that have in common feeling bad and making it someone else's fault that you feel bad. Uh, and that's really what we mean when we say jealousy is bad feeling projected onto our partners. Uh, when we let go of the idea that it's anybody's job but our own to find a way through the jealousy, yeah, we don't get to say, I feel jealous because you spent an evening with them, uh, so I don't want you to do that anymore. Instead, we say, I feel jealous because you spent an evening with them. Could you maybe reassure me a little bit that you're going to come back to me? Or could you maybe give me a massage because I feel physically unconnected with you? Or could you call me when you're done with your meeting with them uh, because I worry that you're safe when you're away from home and I want to hear from you to make sure you're not in a pile of rubble on the side of the road? Um, then we get a clearer idea of what our jealousy actually is and what we can do to begin to make ourselves feel a little bit better. Yeah, I like that because in particular, um, you mentioned the request that can come from jealousy and and the requests that you mentioned anyway are mostly about restoring safety uh, for the person who's feeling jealous yeah who's feeling angry or, or scared or sad sometimes jealousy is actually a kind of grief because you're letting go of a picture of what you thought your relationship was going to be to make room for another one but it's normal to grieve a little bit for the the future you thought you were going to have uh, as you make space for a different future um, and that can be worked with too some of it is self-care um People might like to take a bubble bath if that's the way they roll or go to the gym and work out to the point where their muscles are shaking if that's the way they roll or whatever. We all know kind of how to take care of ourselves when something is frightening or angering or saddening us. And now's the time if you're feeling jealous to go into that mode. Yeah. Yeah. And how about when people experience things like like the racing thoughts of... Their ah, yes, the racing thoughts. Yeah. Sometimes um, at that point, I would get out a journal, if, if that's the way you think, or a sketch pad, and just go for it. Just write down your, your racing thoughts until you realize how absurd they are. Because when you see them in front of you, you will see that they are everything to do with you and nothing to do with what's actually happening. Because you don't know what's actually happening. You're not there. Right. So right. It's, your own, it's your own insecurities. Um made manifest. In, in my last long-term relationship, I found that I would go into that racing thoughts, jealousy, storm space anytime my partner was with someone younger and thinner than I am. I think it is safe to say that this has very little to do with me, or with them, rather. It's, it's me and my the things I don't like about myself. I, I'm not really willing to tell a partner that you can only have sex with people who are older and fatter than me. <laughs> uh, instead, I kind of have to look at myself and learn to love myself just as old and as fat as I am. Yeah, and that is a potent prescription for anyone, no matter no matter where you are, who you're in relationship with, or if you're single. 
um, such an important aspect of actually being able to show up fully in relationship is exactly. being on uh, that journey. In the ethical slot, we talk about jealousy as a gift, and that's one of its gifts, is it is a nice little neon blinking arrow that points to our own insecurities and the things we don't care for about ourselves that we can work on. Yeah, yeah, and what is the balance there between um, when like taking responsibility for your feelings of jealousy and at the same time having agreements with your, with your partner that um, where maybe your partner is violating them or maybe you're um, like, maybe you have a reason quote unquote to be jealous. That's not just about your insecurity, but it's about something else that's going on. Well, one of the aphorisms in the book that I rather like is the way you can tell that you don't have an agreement is that someone doesn't agree to it anymore. And so if, if one partner is consistently violating an agreement, I mean, everybody slips up now and again, um, often by accident. But if, if an agreement is chafing so closely that someone cannot maintain their side of it, um, then it needs to be reapproached, and it may turn out that an agreement cannot be reached. Um, and at that point, either the partner who feels that their agreement has been violated has to learn to live with the fact that that agreement is going to get breached. And often we do. I mean, you know, we all make compromises to stay in a relationship. My partner promised years ago that he would be in charge of cleaning the kitchen counters. And when they get too gross, I can either go and nag him into cleaning the kitchen counters or I can suck it up and do it myself. And frankly, more often I do the latter because it's just not worth it. And so, you know, that's the kind of compromise we make. And I don't want to trivialize something like jealousy by comparing it to clean counters. But it is an example of the way we make space within our agreements for a certain amount of compromise. Um, Or they may decide that they can't live without that, in which case it's time to move into how do we end this relationship in a mindful and respectful way. Yeah, and what I'm thinking as as you're talking about counters and jealousy was how important it is to be having conversations about your agreements in this. And I think this is why, um, and we, we hinted at this earlier, but this is why um, opening up your monogamous relationship is so often not a prescription for fixing things yeah. because it requires such a high level of communication and honesty and the lack of that might be one of, and, and in most cases is one of the huge problems in a monogamous relationship. Absolutely. Well, a chapter of The Ethical Slut that I would recommend for anybody is the chapter called Embracing Conflict, in which we set forth some strategies for dealing with these kinds of difficult discussions, uh, some ground rules uh, about making space for everybody to speak, learning how to actually listen instead of spending your time thinking of what you're going to say next, Uh, letting go of the idea that someone is going to win and someone is going to lose in any given discussion because someone who loses, quote-unquote, in such a discussion has not really given up their desire to have what they're arguing for. They're just going to 
walk around feeling resentful. So you have to find a way that everybody feels that they've been heard and that their requirements are at least being given respect. Um, so everything from setting a schedule for a fight, because a lot of people can't approach arguing when they're highly adrenalized and it works better to set it aside for a time when the, the triggering has died down. And, you know, so it's perfectly fine to set a time in your date book to argue with your spouse or your, your partner. Yeah, um, I love that suggestion, um, particularly because I think it's so we can be so scared of a fight that when we're finally in one and you know maybe it's because when i say finally it's because we've been like avoiding it for a day or two or you know yes. a half hour or whatever so you find yourself in a fight and then it's like well whatever it takes we're just going to end this right now yeah. <laughs> versus like saying okay like let's be patient let's be as patient with the fight as we are with each other's shortcomings hopefully um, and uh, and allow it to allow ourselves the spaciousness to actually evolve how we think in this conflict. Exactly, and and some of it, a lot of the suggestions in that chapter chapter involve having a timer, um, because it can work very well to give person A three minutes to make their point, and then you take a minute for both of you to sit quietly and think about that. And then the other person has three minutes to put out their point of view. And then maybe you take another minute and then you talk about it for another 10 minutes and then the timer rings and you stop. Because a lot of really crappy things in arguments happen when someone wants the last word, as we all know. <laughs> and I do not want to pretend that I'm impervious to this because I'm not. Um, but the last word is a really tempting thing because it's such a marvelously moral high ground thing to be able to do is say something devastating that will end the argument. And that does not end an argument. It just rubs it a little rawer so it gets worse the next time. So a lot of this is, you know, if you were having an argument, if you were arguing for a raise at work, um, you would not walk in there raging and shrieking and insisting on having the last word um, because it's not an effective strategy. It's not any more an effective strategy um, with your partner. Yeah. Yeah. And nor is it an effective strategy if you really want that raise to just sit around waiting and hoping that it will happen. Exactly. Um, yes. Yeah, and I what I really like about the timing suggestion, so and just to be clear, I think what you say is like set aside 20 minutes for for an argument or for yes. a conflict. Let's let's at least open be open to the possibility that it may not be a raging argument, but just to talk about what you're in conflict about. That sounds yeah, so I, I much think a nicer. We'll hear the word argument and assume that it means raging. But if you think about an argument in court, it isn't. It's setting out the logic behind your stance. Right. Um, so an argument does not have to be inflamed. Uh, it can be very difficult, and it's a high-level skill to learn to argue your case without inflaming. Right. Um, but it can hurt. Yeah, and so you something you mentioned in the book and that I like to emphasize here on the show is this idea that once you are inflamed – all bets are off pretty much yeah. at that point. <laughs> you're not you're not in the part of your brain that allows you to be creative and curious and to really even listen. 
Yes, um, exactly. You're you're adrenalized and adrenaline. It's a marvelous endochemical drug. If if you're being attacked by a lion, adrenaline is what you want. If you're trying to make agreements with your spouse, not so much. Right. Right. Um, and we've had, thankfully, a, a bunch of different episodes. I mean, the one that comes to mind right now is um, episode 34 that we had with Stephen Porges, um, who's the founder of polyvagal theory, where we talk a lot about what's happening in your physiology um, when you're triggered and how to um, counteract the effects of being triggered. Um, that's that's one of the self-awareness issues that I talked about earlier. It can be very difficult when you're that kind of adrenalized to recognize what's going on um, and what needs to be done to pull you back towards center again. But it's it's very good to be able to feel in your body the feelings that mean that you're not thinking very straight anymore and to know what needs to be done. Yeah, and that's, I think you um, had a suggestion that we've talked about on the show as well, which is to, to have a keyword or something like that, that either partner can can speak, which basically says like, hey, like we need a timeout right now. Like, <laughs> let's yeah. just let's just step yeah, away. It's a technique borrowed from BDSM where when one partner likes to be able to say, no, no, please stop anything but that. And the other one needs to have a way to know when they mean really, no, no, please stop. Um, and in BDSM, there's a thing called the safe word. And if you say red, that means no, really, I need you to stop. Um, and we're, we're working with the same strategies here. We're dealing with emotional pain rather than physical pain. But you need to be able to have a way to say, I'm too triggered to do this right now. Um, let's give it a break. and come back to it when we're both feeling a little saner yeah yeah and um i particularly like um safe words that have a little humor to them or that are that are totally out of left field especially in the case of conflict yeah um since it helps people remember to get some perspective on the whole thing that it's um my spouse and i both have some chronic pain issues and when we notice that we've, we're both hurting enough that our mutual conversation consists largely of the word ow we actually have a strategy where we designate a different word than ow something like schenectady or <laughs> whatever and so you're not allowed to say ow anymore you have to say schenectady which makes you aware of how often you're saying ow and makes you think twice about doing it because it's not really a terribly helpful thing to say and brings a little humor into it yeah and so it can work like that yeah, and honestly, anything that we can do to lighten our lives, I think, is exactly. really important. Not enough laughter in the world, especially when things are difficult and fraught. Yeah. Um, I'm curious if you could talk for a few minutes about the ingredients of a truly successful poly relationship. What, what have you seen where it's like really worked well? I think you could leave the word poly out of that sentence and it would be about the same answer. Um, if people are respectful of each other's boundaries, but willing to try things that are a little challenging. Um, if people are taking care of the commitments they have in their lives, whether those are raising children or caring for an aging parent or building a career or maintaining a household, if, if all that is getting handled. If nobody's miserable, that's a pretty good start. 
<laughs> I mean, it, it may be a little too much to ask that we wake up every morning whistling and looking forward to our day because that's not the way life is, although it'd be nice to have that sometimes. But if we're not dreading every moment of our lives, that's a pretty good indicator that we're doing something right. Yeah, I well, I agree with you. And um and I, yeah, I like that idea that it really doesn't matter. What matters is how successful you are. At exactly. Exactly. You know, I, I know ever so many people who live in relationships that I would not touch with a 10 foot pole, um, but they are happy. They're, you know, it's, it's working for them. And I do not believe with argu- arguing with people about what's working for them. Yeah. Yeah. And do you find that there's like, is there um, a problem in within mono and poly communities around like my way is better and like how do you sidestep that? I, I think that's human nature to want to make it. I'm I am whatever I am because it's the best way to be and the way you are is not so good. Um, I, I tend not to argue with people like that because it's it's a lost cause. I flutter my eyelashes sweetly at them and say, I'm so happy that it's working for you. And that's that. Um, If they come to tell me that the way I'm doing it is wrong, then yeah, I will stand up for what I'm doing. But mostly if people are happy with whatever their silly arrangements are, um, then more power to them. I had a very interesting conversation the other night. I was um, chatting with a friend of mine who is a full two generations younger than me. And she is a young lesbian who kind of grew up in sex positive culture. Uh, you know, she was, she's only a few years older than the ethical slut is. Um, and she was telling me that she had recently met someone who was in a monogamous relationship. And the way she was processing that was it seemed like a very odd kink to her that someone would want to uh, commit all their sex to only one person. It seemed like some bizarre <laughs> variant on BDSM, um, which is as good a way to frame it as any. But what works for someone works for someone. And I think if you're feeling insecure enough about what's working for you that you have to shove it at other people, then that's a thing you should be looking at. Yeah. Yeah, I'm okay. So now I'm trying to figure out a good way to phrase this question that's uh, I don't have it written down. So it's going to okay. bubble bubble forth. Um but j- let me give you I guess a moment of background about this question because on this show we've also talked a lot about forms of sex and tantra that are about um non ejaculatory orgasms and like non-peak orgasms yes the idea being that you're fostering um oxytocin production in your body and which helps you bond and which also which is helping to foster um the union that people in monogamous relationships feel and i think that's what you feel with your lover no matter no matter what your configuration Mm -hmm. um but but in the context of this show we've been talking about it as a way to help really nurture monogamy and 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 contrasting it with like a dopamine fueled sexual cycle where the dopamine is about searching and novelty and and is why um, or at least one reason why having lots of different sexual partners could seem so appealing. Um, 
so uh, I'm there's a question forming in here, but go ahead. I hear you you're you'd like to say something. So yeah, I would. Um I think that it is true that long-term relationships mellow into a different sort of sexuality or romanticism than the shiny new thing. I, th- I think that may not be inevitable, but it's pretty darn close to it. I think, uh, I don't know, you've, you've probably never interviewed uh, Jack Moran, who wrote The Erotic Mind. We lost him to cancer, I think, year before last. But The Erotic Mind is my favorite book about this issue. And I highly recommend it to your listeners. Um, Jack's contention that I think is correct is that what fuels that intense, shiny new thing infatuation is tension. It's stress. Um, And when you are mellow and not feeling challenged and not feeling stressed, uh, it tends to ebb down into something more gentle. Um, not that fierce desire that we all felt um, with the shiny new thing. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I I really don't. And there are ways of getting it back, and I would recommend Jack's book for talking about that. Um, I'm not sure that Tantra necessarily does that. Uh, I think my own experience with Tantra is that the states of, of being that can be attained through Tantra are not necessarily partnered. I have been to some astonishing places doing solo practice, um, and they are certainly not always mellow, oxytocin-y places. Right. Uh, I've been into some very fierce tantric states. Um, so, I, I, while tantra, I think, is a wonderful skill, I think it has some risks that maybe don't get acknowledged as much as they should at the beginner level, um, which is a whole other topic for a whole other day. Um, but some of the skills of Tantra, of staying present, uh, eye contact, staying with the breath, those are wonderful skills that I think really will help anybody with whatever kind of relationship they're putting together. How would someone, if I'm in a, if I'm in currently a monogamous relationship and thinking like, well, maybe, maybe I'm really poly because I'm, I feel desire for other people. Um, no, that's, that's just silly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unless you have no libido at all. Of course you feel desire for other people. Are you an idiot? Um, it's, I, I, I just cannot believe that in this day and age, people still think that monogamy means that you never get horny for anybody else. Um, yeah. So my, my spouse is also bisexual. And one of the great things about being married to a fellow bisexual is we can perv on the same television shows and <laughs> celebrities and so on. It's, it's a happy making thing. So, yeah, I guess the, the deeper question there is how would I know if it's worth trying to open my relationship versus, um, just accepting like I'm human and of course I have desires and and I'm going to going to field this within the context of being monogamous and committed to this one partner. I, I don't think that's a decision that anybody gets to make but the two people directly involved. But I would say that if the relationship is working on all other other levels or yeah, realistically most other levels, but the hunger for sexual novelty is an issue and or if 
someone finds themselves falling in love with an outside party, then it's time to look at least on at, at what can be managed. It is realistic. In fact, one of the ways you can tell that a poly relationship is working pretty well at any given time is that almost always there's one partner who wants more poly and one who wants less. And the one who wants less poly is going to be feeling a little bit stretched, a little bit out of their comfort zone. And the one who wants more poly is going to be feeling a little bit constrained and a little bit like they'd like more. And if everybody's just tolerably uncomfortable, that's a pretty good sign that you're doing it right. (laughs) That's great. And I guess as opposed to one person feeling like it's wildly successful and the other feeling like they were Feeling resentful, feeling abused. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and as I was asking the question, I th- I think that need to communicate. It's like it's what it all boils down to, really, is how well are you communicating about this question that you have? Yeah, and how and I'm wondering if you have a, su- a suggestion for how to bring the question into conversation with a partner in a way that's most likely to yield the best result that's safe um safe might be sharing erotica that one or the other of you finds compelling uh it might be looking together at personal ads and spinning a fantasy together about how um a third party might uh work out it might be um free associating some thoughts about um what your life might look like if you took on these new agreements. It yep. might so some couples um, go to the place of sharing a, a third party in in their bed together as as a nice training wheel step, and some of them stay there. That's that's all they want and all they need is to occasionally bring someone home. Uh, one friend of mine calls this dessert. She says, I love being lovers with a couple because I get to be dessert. Um, <laughs> and so maybe what you want is an occasional dessert and that's fine. And there's nothing in the world saying you have to go beyond that. Um, on the other hand, maybe what you want is a wild Saturday night at the club every now and again. We interviewed one couple in um, Ethical Slut who had started out with an agreement that their monogamy agreement was in abeyance during Renaissance Fair every year. Anybody who's been behind the scenes in a Renaissance Fair knows that uh, it's pretty much a sluts trade convention back there. Um, And so they started there, and from there they expanded that outward to Renaissance Fair training weekends, and then they expanded it just out into life. And last we heard from them, they're still happily together. It's probably been 15, 20 years, actually getting onto. 20 years since we first interviewed them um, and they're still together. So it obviously worked out for them. Yeah. Yeah. And I, as you were discussing all these possible, it seemed like those were real good entry points for people when they're deciding to take that leap, whether it, it is like opening a relationship or I suppose just opening themselves to a poly uh, approach. Um, yes. So there were two things that came to me. One was like, I'm curious about the step before that for people in relationships who want to um, to approach their partner and just say, hey, I'm thinking about this. Like, And 
I don't want to put an answer in your mouth because I'm curious to hear what what you have to say about it. So well, you, you just did it pretty well. Is, hey, I'm thinking about darn. This. I, I want to share that with you. So, um, I interviewed one couple for an article I did years ago. Um, they were in a complex relationship. They were a gay man and a lesbian who had come together to co-parent and had fallen in love along the way. So some some interesting issues that they were uh, confronting together. And they had a marvelous habit that I wish everybody had. Uh, they were a Jewish couple, and so they had a Shabbat every Friday night with their family. And then after their son had gone to bed, they had what they called the News of the Week in Review. That was an hour with the two of them just sitting down together and talking over what was going on for them. Um, it was just this kind of news of the week in review, um, a time set aside for discussing the state of the relationship, the state of the world, whatever was on their minds, uh, without interruption. And I think something like that, uh, I've talked to couples who share a uh, wiki page where either of them can write down what's with them at the time. I talked to one couple who had a special sofa in their house that if one person went and sat on the sofa, it meant there's something I want to talk to you about that is important, and the other would come sit with them, and they would talk to them, talk about it. Wow. Uh, whatever, but you need to make space for that open communication. Yeah, wow, I love that that idea of, like, the specific place, um, you know, particularly uh, for people uh-huh. who who feel, like, challenged by what do I say in a situation like that, to, so to just yeah. have something that doesn't even involve words. Yes, exactly. And one of, one of, not all of us have the space or the affluence to have a, a piece of furniture just for that. <laughs> but uh, it's a nice idea. Right. Maybe it's that Nick's T-shirt or something like that. You, you put that on, and that's, that's right. Yes. <laughs> um, that's the, a great idea, actually, if a, a piece of clothing. You can put on and then your partner goes and puts on their piece of clothes. Absolutely. I I really like that. Yeah. Though refrain from boxing gloves, please. Um, (laughs) So, and then the other thing that occurred to me was I was thinking about the great exercise in your book about, um, I I forget what you called it, but it was like the sequence of easy things that get you to a hard place. (laughs) The hierarchy of heavy or something like that. Yes. Um, I think the way we actually wrote that exercise is you get a pack of index cards. Stop me if I'm thinking of the wrong thing. And you write down everything you can imagine your beloved doing with another person. And then you organize the index cards from things you don't care about to things that seem impossibly difficult to you. And there's your plan. There's your your plan of attack is you start with the easy stuff. Um, and move toward things that sound harder. And what you will find, I can say this pretty definitely, is that some of the stuff you thought was going to be easy is going to be challenging in ways you didn't know. And some of the stuff you thought was going to be impossible turns out to be no big deal. Yeah, and I i mean, it makes sense that you would be surprised by that. Yeah. And um, because so many of those those thoughts that we have are based on those stories that we have about well, it's this is no big deal, but when you when your partner actually experiences it, it opens up this whole range of, of exactly yeah. Um, I, had, I had a partner for many years who was fine with me having intercourse with other people, but had an issue with seeing me kiss someone else on the mouth. Um, and so we just that was one of our agreements is that I would not do that in his sight. Mm. Uh, 
And later on, he let go of that. It turned out it wasn't difficult for him anymore. So we, we let go of that agreement. But in the beginning, that was what he needed uh, to not go into an angry place that was not helpful. Uh, so we just let that need go. Um, and I didn't do it. Yeah. It didn't and, matter. And what I also like about it is that it gives people a way to to really make it tangible in terms of because it, it to think like okay we're going to be open to each other being with other people there's like a really wide range of what's possible there so yeah. so how do you wrap your brain around it and i th so i think that exercise helps people make it really specific yes yeah, specificity is a really good idea in talking about this stuff. I was doing some telephone consultation years ago with a man who was in a long-term marriage with a, a woman he loved, um, and he had a deep desire for some BDSM scenarios that his spouse was not comfortable providing. And so we were talking about various options for him either things that she could um, stretch herself to do or ways that they could open up the relationship and he called me up one day very happy and said she's agreed that I can go see a dominatrix a professional dominatrix and I said that's awesome I'm really happy for you but do me one favor before you do that go oh, it was uh, I can see a dominatrix as long as I don't have sex with her I said go back to your spouse and find out what she means by sex mm. And he called me up the next day, very downtrodden, saying, it turns out that for her, sex includes any kind of touching on the genitals, and I really, really want cock and ball torture. That's my thing. So they still had more negotiation to do around that. Um, but it's an idea of what kind of specificity these uh, agreements can have. Yeah. Yeah, so it's specificity around your agreements, and then also for yourself to help you really uncover the nuances of like where your, where your fears are, where your anger lies, exactly. where, yeah. Um, how do you manage the complexity in, in like, it, it's hard enough in a, like I, I'm in a monogamous relationship. I have two kids. I have a podcast and a coaching yeah, practice and, you know, uh, it's not, Poly is not a thing to take on while you're working on your doctoral dissertation and raising two kids. Um, <laughs> it's, it is time-consuming. It is complex. I used to say a slut's best friend is her Palm Pilot. Now I say a slut's best friend is their Google Calendar. Um, but it does require the ability to manage some complex logistics and the ability to work on the fly because the, the Google Calendar is all well and good. But if the person your partner was supposed to be seeing Friday night has come down with the flu and you had a date, it may be that all hands go on deck and you're making chicken soup for your lover's lover and your lover is over there cutting up the vegetables for you. Um, you just have to have both the ability to manage and the ability to be flexible in your management. Sometimes someone is just feeling too sad to have their partner away from them at the time. Um, Sometimes there's an accident on the freeway and your play date isn't going to make it to you on time. Uh, and it all has to be, you can't get too married to the logistics you've set up because that <laughs> that's certain to bite you in the ass sooner or later. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, 
yeah, I can I can see why one would want to ma- wait till a time in their life when they had a little bit more more freedom in order yeah. to do that sort of thing. My best guess is that if you and I live to see a future where people can choose whatever relationship they want without judgment, what we will see is people moving in and excuse me in and out of monogamy as their life circumstances change. Um, you know, in your late teens and early twenties, everybody should slut around. It's when when you're that young and learning how the world works, um, you don't want to tie yourself to just one person. You don't know what you want yet. But by the time you get to the point in your life where you're building your career, maybe having children, you're too busy for anything but monogamy. Uh, and then you get later in your life, the kids are grown enough that they don't need your attention anymore. The career's in the groove and you're starting to get a little bored. Then it might be time to look at Polly again. Uh, and I think that would probably be the way many people's lives would pay out, play out if we all could choose. Yeah, and I and my own personal curiosity would be to see how um, how practices for deepening intimacy how that affects that. Yes, so, I agree. Yeah. Um, again, getting back to that whole dopamine thing. Like, if you're just bored, then yeah, like it's gonna <laughs> it's gonna be fun to. But is like just seeking fun necessarily what you want like how do you be conscious about that choice i guess is is really the question that comes up what you don't want to do is anything that is going to do damage to someone you care about yeah um and polly does not necessarily do that you know if I, I think what my my friend the other night with her idea of monogamy as kink was getting at um I mean, really, to us in the poly community, so my partner goes and has sex with someone else, uh, what have I lost? Really, um, I don't own him. Um, I don't own his sexuality. As long as the attention, I'm still getting my own needs for affection, attention, uh, sexuality met, then what am I losing? It, It. one of the inspirations for Ethical Slut was when I was in bed, I was sick for a month with a bad bronchitis and sort of off my ass on pain medication and anti-cough stuff. And I was watching um, Indecent Proposal on the television. And, you know, it's the one with uh, Demi Moore and Woody Harrelson as the young couple and Robert Redford offers her a million dollars to spend the night with him. Right. And it made no sense to me. I mean, I was on codeine and (laughs) what Robert Redford wants to have a million dollars and you have a a problem. It it was just, I mean, why aren't you in bed with them? It just made no no (laughs) sense. Um, And being as long in the poly world as I have been, a lot of popular culture is that kind of crazy to me. Mm -hmm. Um, How many, how many, sitcoms are based on someone getting caught out in a lie how many dramas are based on someone feeling inevitable jealousy um it just begins to seem like i live in a on a different planet than most of the rest of the world yeah yeah i could see that because the culture is still catching up yeah it's getting better yeah it's getting better i I just watched um Love and Friendship, the Jane Austen movie the other Mm -hmm. night. And uh, it ends with three of the characters living together in what, by current standards, we would probably call a polytriad. Although 
probably not as well negotiated a one as we would commend, but that's that's how it ends. And, you know, Jane Austen, I mean, <laughs> how was that? It was awesome. Um, I'm curious if you could talk for a moment about the difference between agreements that are around things you don't do versus agreements around things you do do. Um, it's an excellent distinction. Thank you for making it. Um, I think what a lot of pe- people find is that the agreements they make early in their poly journey are a lot more about what they don't do. And as they get more practiced, those begin to seem unnecessarily training wheel-like and tend to fall by the wayside. And the agreements tend to be more about what you do do. Um, So it may not be, I don't want you to have intercourse with her. Um, Instead, it might be after you have intercourse with her, I really need you back in my bed and I need um, some hug and some reassurance and a sense of your physical presence and that's a do thing um the do ones are a lot easier to administer because if something isn't getting done it's a lot easier to do it than it is to undo something that's been done Mm. yeah and it and it strikes me that that really requires couples to get really clear about what they what they want and what would be helpful and to be willing to experiment around that with each other Absolutely. Um, I thought a hug would help. It's not helping. Can we try, um, I don't know, what would people like? Uh, a massage, um, taking a bath together in our big tub, uh, going out to the hot springs together, whatever. Um, it may be that you're the kind of person who needs physical connection to feel reconnected and that that you've just learned about yourself, that you need the physical connection or you may need to hear and I love you. Or you may need a gifty, or you may need someone to cook you a nice meal. These are all ways of reconnecting. And I know what would work for me, but I don't know what would work for you. Yeah, yeah. And this seems to me to weave back into the earlier threads of our conversation around around jealousy and how you take care of yourself. Yes. And around also... Um, what you said earlier about like when you're with someone else, like what have I lost? Yeah. So there's this this way of nurturing um, the feeling abundant around your your ability to love, to give and receive love, and in that same in that same breath to also acknowledge like it does it's even in the most um, it sounds like in the most dedicated and open and long-term of poly situations, feelings come up and there's, and there's a, it's not like, um, it's not like everyone's good just because we've decided we're poly. Like there's this, this nurturance that's still really important between people in the, in the configuration. Some of the very long-term poly groupings, the, the, couple that started out at the beginning of the grouping by the end of it they're not terribly sexual with one another they're getting on in years and instead there are new partners but they have a commitment to one another and a a sense of fierce connection um, that can be tremendously important Uh, and it's not like they're not a couple anymore they are they're just a couple in a different way than they were when they were young and full of testosterone uh it, it's lovely to see really 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I would love that. And, and, um, uh, before, go ahead. Before we move on, I, there's a book I want to recommend, um, to your listeners. Please. My friend, Kathy, Kathy Labriola, who, who is a poly counselor, uh, has done a book called the jealousy workbook. It, it's written specifically for couples in open relationships, but I, I can't imagine an open-minded couple that would not get help with dealing with jealousy from working through the exercises in the workbook. Great. And we will have links to that book and the other book that you mentioned earlier. Um, the Erotic Mind, yes. The Erotic Mind um, in the show notes for this episode. And just so everyone knows, uh, Janet has very generously offered to give away a signed copy of the book, The Ethical Slut, to a lucky listener. So if you want to qualify for that, all you have to do is download the show notes, which will be at neilsatin.com slash poly, P-O-L-Y. Or you can text the word passion to the number 33444 and just follow the instructions. And that will also uh, allow you to download the show notes and qualify you for the giveaway. So thank you so much for that, Janet. You're very welcome. And I'll make sure that, that everything that we've mentioned as an additional resource, we have a link to it there in the, in the show notes as well. Um, go ahead. As we're talking about resources, one other point that we haven't gotten to yet is the huge importance of finding poly community if you're trying to do this. Um, yeah. One of the real problems that poly people can encounter or want to be poly people can encounter is the lack of role models. Um, it's easier now than it was 20 years ago when we wrote the book the first time around. Um, but many, many therapists, if you go to them with poly issues, will still tell you, well, of course you're running across problems. You're trying to do this impossible thing. Um Many, many books will tell you that it's impossible to be um, respectfully poly, that your marriage is broken if you want that. And so finding other people who have done it, who have succeeded with it, and who you can go to um, to feel seen and like you don't have to hide and you can ask questions, that's really, really important. And it's much easier now than it once was. So there's a great... Um, website at morethan2.com, which is run by my colleague, uh, Franklin Vo, that offers links to any number of poly resources, including munches in a lot of cities and things like that. And is that more than to the number two or TWO? TWO. Okay, great. Yeah, very, very helpful. And um, I'm going to just suggest that if you're in a currently monogamous relationship, that it would be great to have the conversation with your um, with your partner before you really start diving into this too deeply. Oh, thank <laughs> yes, thank you for saying so. Yeah. Yeah, um, thing on your spouse's pillow as a fait accompli is not really our, our suggested way of approaching it. Right. I think you talk about that like as an as an unfortunate there's a moment in the book where you address the uh the unwitting spouse who's received yes. this and it's like I I appreciate that you address that person, because um, that's got gotta yeah. be a hard position to be in. It it really is. Um and the hardest part about being that partner that is having this poly thing waved under your nose is understanding what's in it for you. In particular, if you don't yourself want to be poly, and many people do not, uh, there are 
couples where one is poly and the other is monogamous. It can work. It's not one of the easier ways to do this, but it can work. And what's in it for you can be anything from a happier partner to more time to yourself to a chance to explore whatever you're excited about, even if what you're excited about isn't other partners. Um, there, there are things that can be in it for you anyway, uh, but you'd best get real clear on that early on if you don't want to do poly and your partner does. If you feel like it's taking something from you and not giving you anything back, you're going to have a problem. Yeah, yeah, that makes total sense to me. Um, and back on the on the earlier topic of finding communities, that also made me think of the question of how open one can be about yes. being poly. Um, Again, it's changed a lot. Um, I just saw a note on my Facebook feed from someone who lives in Canada and who got called by the Canadian census and had to explain their three-person household in which they were married to a trans woman and living with another woman uh, to whom they were not legally married. And the census taker just said, oh, so I'll put you down in a polyamorous opposite-sex relationship then. Would that be okay? <laughs> and it's like... I've lived this long. It made me so happy. So maybe wow. we'll get there in the U.S. one of these days. But it is getting a lot easier than it used to be. But if you're a politician, if you are uh, working in a field that re um, requires interaction with children or with the disabled, it's probably not safe, depending on what community you live in, to be out as poly. Yeah. I recommend that anybody who can afford to be out as poly do so because the more of us who can um, – I'm sure you were aware when we were fighting for gay marriage that the single factor that most affected whether someone was pro or anti-gay rights was whether they knew any gay people. So it's going to be the same thing for Polly. As we search for greater visibility, greater legal recognition, uh, what's going to matter the most is how many happy, healthy Polly people are visible. So I do recommend being out if you can, but if you can't, that's a tough one to take back. Yeah. So be careful who you tell. Yeah. Well, I I appreciate all of your work and also your co-author Dossie Easton's work in making it more uh, more acceptable and more known. And and my experience has been that that things are changing and and I I hold with you this vision of having a world where people are free to love whomever, wh however, as long as no one's getting hurt in the process. Well, when I speak on college campuses these days, it is normal that there will be a number of second generation poly people in my audience. In one case, I actually had a third generation poly person in my audience. So the world is changing in that way. And I'm really happy to see it. Well, Janet W. Hardy, thank you so much for spending time with us today and, again, for your valuable contribution, for your offer of that signed book as a giveaway to a lucky listener, and um, and for this vision of the, I liked the word fierce, like fierce connection, fierce intimacy, and, and how that's possible when everyone is really communicating well, and you're... Um, the the way that your book the ethical slut allows that conversation to be more open and all the tools that you offer to help people have that conversation is really an invaluable gift thank you so much well thank you for having me on 
Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com slash podcast. Or you can always text the word passion, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest? Let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.